Jeanette, the visiting preacher, for a few more weeks here. Get to be with you through Resurrection Day, Easter, and so looking forward to that celebration with you. Uh, in preparation of that, let me just do a little preaching, coaching, kind of suggesting uh, where we're, we're headed here in the uh, next few weeks together. We finished First uh, Thessalonians, that is, and um, now I'm, I'm looking toward Resurrection Day, Easter Sunday, and um, we're going to be talking about the plan of God. So if you have your Bible, if you would turn to Galatians 4.4. 4. Galatians 4.4. 4. I'm going to read that in just a moment, and then we're going to pray together. And um, I will continue probably to do a, a little bit more coaching about where we're headed because I like you to be informed. I like you to know where we're headed. And particularly, though, at this moment, I'm grateful for Bruce reminding us of the challenges that are facing the Ukrainians. Um, you know, we, we live in a North American world. Pretty tough to get out of it, I understand that, but we so often move on so very quickly. We, we get um, um, unsatisfied with the moment and we want to press on and, and um, perseverance at times has not been our trademark. At other times it has been our trademark. So I'm grateful that we keep the Ukrainians, the Ukrainian church, the missionaries, all of those uh, in our prayers together. Galatians 4, 4 through 4, 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I'll read verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray together. Lord, we do sit at your feet again, praying that you would teach us exactly what you would have us to know about what you're doing in this world. Lord, I pray that you would show yourself strong and mighty and glorious. Lord, I pray that you would help us to um, see our surroundings and our world, our lives, through your lenses. I pray that you would help us and give us that wisdom that you've promised. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here's where I'm headed. You know, every, um, every task usually has some kind of a plan oriented to it. Um, I'm sarcastically thrilled when I get a new package. I get a lot of packages now via the uh, people who bring them to us. And um, I get a lot of packages, and, and, I, and I open it up, and there are the instructions of how to put this together. I hate following these instructions. But I know that if I don't follow these instructions, I'm headed for frustration and trouble. Um, especially when these uh, things that come to me that it looks rather complicated to put together, but when I look at the instructions, it's one sheet of paper 
with some things that look like stick drawings from the Stone Age. I mean, you know, there's not real pictures, it's just drawings, and, and it's really, really terribly confusing. The, the plan, the instructions for those is just bothersome. Dr. Julian and I do some work together from time to time, and we were remarking about how we go about things. These past couple of weeks, we have been building a Revolutionary War carronade cannon carriage. What in the world is that? Well, imagine, if you will, the big tall ships during the Revolutionary period. They had some cannons, you know, where they lift the portal on the side of the ship and slide the cannon out. You've seen movies or something like that. That's below deck. On the top of the deck, they don't open up anything. Actually, those cannons are on pulleys and wheels that allow them to turn, and they're called carronade cannons. And we just put one together or built a carriage for that, weighed about a thousand pounds, and so it was huge. And when we go to do a task like that, we draw a picture. I always like to draw a two-scale picture of whatever I'm doing. Now, it's nothing like Steve or Barry would do in the architectural place, but it's a, it's a, um, a drawing to scale. And what that helps us to do, we were talking about it, how important that drawing this plan is, because it helps us with things like a material list. How much do we need to do this? It helps us with a, a, a tool list. What are the tools that we're going to use to put this thing together to, to accomplish this task? Probably more importantly than any of those kinds of things are, are, is the fact of time. That, that was really our, our biggest remark. You know, I've built a few things <laughs> without a plan, <laughs> and it shows. Usually end up having to rebuild it again. But I've built a few things, and all of those things that I just mentioned end up to be a problem. Don't have enough material, don't have the right kind of material, don't have the right tool, or forgot the right tool, or didn't, didn't plan that. And for sure, for sure, every time that we don't have a plan going forward, it takes a lot more time. Why? We make mistakes. When you draw a plan, you can see how this fits to this, and you can say, oh, okay, oh, it doesn't need to be that long because it's going to fit a different way. I know I'm being somewhat ambiguous here, but I don't really want to get into drawing plans as much as making the point how beneficial that a plan is. Well, in biblical terminology, God's plan, to use a theological word, the word is foreordain. Foreordain. And we have a lot of other fours. We have foreknowledge and uh, predestination and things like that. But when we're talking about the plan of God, we're talking about the word foreordained, uh, taken from um, A. A. Hodge. A. A. Hodge was a systematic theology prof uh, at Princeton way back oh, in 1878. He's the son of Charles Hodge, a, a famous theologian. And I realize, as soon as I say that, before I give you a definition more about what I'm talking about from the biblical perspective, I realize that I'm talking about a very theologically rich, a theologically deep topic today. But I do want to make sure that we bring it to application, and we certainly will in our lives. I, I, to some extent, this is 
Well, honestly, this begins to get more and more important the older I get. I want to know God in this way. I want to know, God, what are you doing? What is your plan? So, so back to Hodge. Hodge has come up with this understanding of God's foreordination or God's eternal plan. Since God the Father, I'm going to do it rather slowly, since God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit has no beginning. Are we there? I know, it's early. But no beginning, infinite, that way. But is eternal and never changing. Since God's knowledge is infinite, since God is all-powerful, able to carry out all his good pleasure, he therefore never learns anything. Wow. God never learns anything outside of his eternal wisdom, nor is he ever surprised by the most insignificant event, but will carry out the pact formed from all eternity. Key word there, pact, P-A-C-T. That pact, that promise, that covenant. And so what Hodge is simply saying here, in other words, is that God has been infinite in every way, including his knowledge. He always knows what he intends to do. This, at least in part, is what we call God's eternal plan. Now, this is really beyond our understanding. It really is. Eternity is. It's very difficult for us to comprehend the fact that God never had a beginning and will never have an end. Some things are beyond our understanding. But if God is all-knowledgeable, if he's all-powerful, if God is infinite in every single way, then nothing takes him by surprise. He doesn't learn some new knowledge. God has always been infinite, and he's always been omniscient, all-knowing. And if that is the case which it is. God in his providence has foreordained all things whatsoever takes place. And I want to know it. I want to know it. So this morning is the first of a four-part series in the eternal plan of God. And this morning's installment is from eternity really all I want to say today is is that God has had a plan from all eternity next week we're going to look at God's plan from humanity in the life of Christ from humanity Uh, then on Good Friday when we gather together in the evening we're, we're going to look at God's eternal plan from reality the fact that the, of the cross, the reality of the cross. And then Easter Sunday morning, we are going to look at the plan of God from the perspective of victory. So that's the four-part series. We're here from all eternity. And I have three parts, of course, being a preacher. Therefore, uh, well, just because you just said it, and maybe you said it in some impassioned way, does that make it true? First of all, is there really a plan? Where does Scripture say that there is a plan? Secondly, 
who does what in the plan? Is there a plan? Who does what in the plan? And how does the, how does the plan include me? Because it, it sounds like right now we're kind of in a you know, systematic theology class in college all of a sudden. And, and uh, I don't want it to sound that way, and yet I don't apologize for us chewing on some meat, understanding what it is that God is doing and why he's doing it and what that means to me. So that's where we're headed. So is there a plan? Simply here, without preaching these texts, and I know it's a danger. When I put a text in front of you, we may want to talk about that text and all that it means. At this juncture, I'm going to put, I don't know, four, five, six verses in front of you. And all I want us to see is this emphasis on God's plan. So take a look at Psalm 139.16. Psalm 139.16. And if you're a person that takes notes, I recommend just taking down the reference of these at this point, and you can look them back up again. Psalm 139.16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now often when we look at these texts for the plan of God, we have to look at the, at the tense of the verb. Look, in your book were written. God wrote it, past tense. This has already been done, but when? When as it as yet, there was none of them. One of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible, Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46.10. This is what it says of God. He is declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel. What is that? My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. That implies something. What does it imply? It implies God has a purpose. Do you see that? God has a purpose. In our passage that I read at the outset of the sermon, Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God, at the right time, God did what God does. And I'm going to come back to Galatians 4. 4 through 6 in just a minute, but I want you to see that there was a time. He didn't do it then. He didn't do it later. He did it at the fullness of time. What does that imply? That implies that there was a right time to do it. That implies that there was a plan to do it at that time. This is what God is doing. Matthew 25, 34. Matthew 25, 34. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You're beginning to see that. You, I, I, pastor, preacher, you can move on. I got your point. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not going to move on. I'm going to pound it. God says that he has a plan from before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians 1.4, wonderful chapter that Bruce read. We're going to return to Ephesians 1 as well in a few minutes. But here, 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, I know we want to chase on off into our wonderful doctrine of Calvinism and soteriology and the doctrine of salvation. But before we just let our minds run in that direction, let's, let's be clear about this. God did whatever he did before the foundation of the world. Why? Because he intended to do it, because he had a plan. 2 Timothy 1.9. 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us, that is, God who saved us, the Lord Jesus who saved us, and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose, not underlined, but there it is, because of his own purpose. If God did something because of his purpose, he had to purpose it first. He did it according to his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before the ages began. God didn't develop a plan through time. He didn't kind of push a, a small little snowball off the hill and, and down and watch it grow and roll and, and decide this and decide that. God had a plan before the ages began. And finally, in 1 Corinthians 2, 7, but we impart a secret a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for all glory. Not only, now listen, not only did God have a plan before the ages started, but he decreed that that plan would take place. Now I know that that probably fills your mind with all kinds of questions, certainly about evil and sin and the hard things in the world world and those kinds of things that we cannot tackle in this but i want to say to you when we ask the question is there a plan the bible clearly reveals that god has had intentions that god has had purpose that god has had decreed that god has foreordination before this world as we know it was ever the foundation of it ever laid before I mean, that's huge to me. There's no anchor big enough to draw that kind of an analogy of what that means to our lives. That God has a plan and that he's planned it from all eternity. Who does what in the plan? I mean, we've seen a lot of this and most of it's emphasized on God the Father right there. But who does what in the plan? Um, Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology has written a very theological answer to this question. He says this, <coughs> excuse me, in the economy of redemption, that's what we're talking about now, in redeeming mankind, in the economy of redemption, there is a division of labor. A division of labor. Somebody does this, somebody does that. In the economy of redemption, there's a division of labor. He says the father is the originator. He says the son is the executor, originator and ex not executionist. <laughs> He's the executor. He's the one who executes it. Okay, that's a, and the spirit is the applier. Now, if if those words are too kind of theologically sounding, I, I've chosen the fact that God is the decider, Jesus is the abider, and the Holy Spirit is the applier. 
God is the decider. God is the one. All, all of the little analogies and things that you might put together, whether it is of architecture, building a building, fixing a car, whatever, they're going to break down a little bit. But in, in this case, I would suggest to you that God is the decider. Even as I look at Galatians 4, now I would love to take the rest of the afternoon with you and go through Galatians and show you the time orientation and the importance of the time that is indicated in Galatians to understand the entire letter. I can't do that, so I'll have to restrict myself just to these. But when, key word there, but when the fullness of time had come, God. God. God is the decider. God sent forth his son. He's not finished all of his deciding. In fact, what comes to my mind, do you remember this? In, in the revelation of John, when Jesus comes back, the Bible even indicates to us that the son doesn't know exactly what that time is. A mystery to us, I'm not completely sure how we can unravel that, but God the Father will send again. And he will return, as we saw in Thessalonians and during our study. God is the decider. God sent forth his son. I have been spending the past two years in the upper room discourse of John. I actually went and preached a series here for those of you who weren't here during those days. But I've spent the last two years studying the Upper Room Discourse, John chapter 13 through 17. And this is what John 17, 1 through 5 says. Listen to this in the context of what we're talking about. God's plan, who does what, and listen to what God does. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom he, you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, there's so much in there, and I love it, but let's just keep it simple here. Jesus is saying, God the Father, now's the time for you to do what you said you were going to do in that eternal pact, that eternal promise, that eternal covenant, that plan that you have outlined throughout all of Scripture, now's the time. That's what God's going to do. Who does what? God does that. It's right on schedule. So much more to unpack about that, but I will, res I just, I don't know. Maybe I'm getting a little mushy in my old age. Getting a little older and starting to think about, you know, what happens next. One of these times that what happens next is a pine box, right? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe that's why it's endearing to me more and more. I don't know. 
love that God has a plan and that He's in charge and that it is unfolding. And there's no shifting of shadow, as James says. It's just solid. Maybe it's this changing world around us and wars and rumors of wars. But God the Father is the decider. God the Son is the, I said, abider, the one who lives, the one who dwells, the one who carries it out, if you will, in, in some respects. God the Son is the abider. And I'm not going to say as much about that today because that really is the topic of next week's sermon. But let's at least see it in Scripture. In Philippians chapter 2, you know it very well. It's a very familiar passage of Scripture over here um, in Philippians 2. I'll pick it up just at verse 5, at least for it to be in your hearing. Who does what in this plan? God the Father is the decider. Jesus, God the Son, is the abider. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. I gotta stop. I just can't keep reading the words without saying to you, when do you think Jesus said he would do that? Oh, well, I think the date was, uh, well, it's a little confusing about the Roman emperors, whether it was at the year zero, which there's no year zero, or whether it was B.C. 1 or B.C. 3 or... No, 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 no. This is the eternal pact. This is the eternal covenant. Oh, granted, it is a, the triune God is a mystery to us, is it not? That there are three persons in one. Uh, but, but there is no uh, ambiguity, there's no confusion, there's no, there's no lack of harmony in, in any sense of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so when I'm reading these things and I'm asking the question, who does what in this plan? And I say to myself, well, here's what the Lord Jesus said, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted. And there he is again. You know, <laughs> I just... Wouldn't you have loved, as we say in our analogy, to have been a fly on the wall? There they are. The persons of the, of the Trinity, they're gathered together and they're discussing the plan. And God says, I'll do this. And the Son says, I'll do that. And the Spirit says, I'll do that. I would love to hear that conversation. And, and the Father looks at the Son and he says, okay, this is, this is human. Listen, don't send me cards and letters via the email and all this kind of stuff. You know, I'm being way too human about this. But if I were there, I'd be, I'd be thinking, oh, wow, I'm going to die? What's going to happen then? Don't you worry about it. I'm going to raise you from the dead. Now, that's not in the Bible. Don't, don't write that in your notes. 
I'm just saying the, the text says therefore God highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every you know what this says the plan's not finished that every knee shall bow and every tongue uh, under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father it's still happening and God is still doing that who does what Oh, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the applier. How does it get to me? John chapter 3. When we go to John chapter 3, we see that conversation with Nicodemus and the Lord Jesus, and he says, uh, flesh is flesh, spirit is spirit, unless you are born of the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit regenerates. The Spirit gives a new heart. You are born again by the Spirit of God. Later in John, in John chapter 16, the Bible says that it's the Spirit of God that convicts, that convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that applies this. He, he's the one who indwells us in 1 Corinthians. Don't you know that your body is the temple, that the Spirit of God lives in you, according to 1 Corinthians 3.16? We just got finished 1 Thessalonians in several places in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. The Bible says it's the Spirit who works in us, making us more holy. Remember that, that theological word, sanctify? He's sanctified. That's the work of the Spirit. He's applying the plan to your life. And in fact, the Bible says that it's the Spirit of God that gives you the hope of completed righteousness when the Lord Jesus comes back again. The Holy Spirit is still doing His work in dwelling us and giving us that power of hope that Jesus is coming back again. The Spirit is doing His work. That's the plan. That's what He said that He would do. God the Father, I will take all that you planned. God the Son, I will take all that you did and I will apply it. I will make it active in the life of your creation. There's a plan. I really like that. I really love that. There's so much more that can be said about it. But I press on to how does this plan include me? Where does that come in? And at the risk of being in a Reformed Baptist church, if folks, if you're sitting here today and you don't know that you're in a Reformed Baptist church, what does that mean? That one of the things that that means is that you're among people who believe that God has a plan and that he's carrying out his good pleasure, that he is seated in the heavens and he does all that he chooses to do. He is in control. And that means even on salvation, who it is that gets that birth of the Holy Spirit, the new heart. God is in charge. That's okay to say, folks, but you cannot take Romans 10, 13 out of the Bible. If you're asking me, how does this plan apply to me? I've heard a lot of theological things going on here. I haven't heard a lot of illustrations this morning. I've heard a lot of Bible this morning, but I want to know, how does that apply to me? Here's more Bible right here in Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Now, you've heard that in a lot of contexts. You've heard that in evangelistic sermons, and well, you should. You've heard that in expositions through Romans. But I am here to say to you, that is a part of God's eternal plan. That whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is his plan. Today, if you're sitting here and you're listening to this theologically chock full sermon on the eternal plan of God and you say wait a minute I don't see me in that you may not be in it in that regard in a salvific in a salvation kind of way you might not be in that position but I want to say to you very clearly as I already have but I'm going to say it again I want to say very clearly to you that if you've believed the word of God, that God has a plan, then believe this. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And he will change your life. And the Holy Spirit will come in and give you a new heart. Yes, he will convict you of sin and require to turn away and to repent from that and to turn to him. But even that, as I've said last week, is a gift of God. And you will be made new. Because it's the plan of God. What about me? I mean, I'm pretty sure I know the Lord. I've been walking with the Lord these few years and uh, maybe decades. Uh, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, Pastor, you haven't really said anything that I didn't know. I know that God is seated on the throne and that he does what he pleases. I know that God has a plan. Even, even the world, in these award shows, they get up there and say, well, you know, I knew that, always knew that God had a plan for my life. I escape a car accident. Yeah, well, God must have a plan. I mean, even the world says things like, you know, I believe that God has, has a plan. Well, what about me? I mean, where, is your, where are your three or four points of application to me, the believer who knows that I'm a part of God's plan? Actually, you're asking a question I asked. Really? I'm like Thursday, Wednesday sermon, Thursday developing a sermon. You know, I think it might have even been Friday. Don't remember exactly what. I was reading what Bruce read. Where is it? Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. And saying, okay, God, well, this, this sermon, this sermon doesn't have that, that punch, that that dramatic ending i mean i i need something i need something in the sermon to say to these folks okay well you've been waxing eloquent here for these you know x number of minutes 25 minutes or or, or more about god's plan and who does what um and i read this blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he is blessed in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon. Oh God, I've, 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 I've 
done an exposition of, of, of Ephesians before, and, and I've gone through that. And, you know, we don't, certainly don't have time to go verse by verse through Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Again, it's like all one sentence right there. And then, bam, bam, bam. God said, I'll tell you what the application is. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, the Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. And then God convicted me. What are you saying, fool? That's God to me. It's not good enough just to the praise of my glory. You need something more than to the praise of my glorious grace. Throughout the entire passage, it's, I did this for my good pleasure, for the purpose that I set out from all eternity. And, and, and you want to say that to his praise and to his glory is not high enough. Piper and others have said, what we praise most, we love most. What we praise most, we treasure most. I love God's plan. I love that God has a plan. I love that I can look into the Word of God and see what God is doing, God the Son is doing, God the Holy Spirit is doing. And I say, oh God, thank you. Praise, praise your glorious grace. Praise to the Lord the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh my soul, praise Him, for He is your health and salvation. Come all who hear now to his temple, draw near. Join me. I love that line, and I'd like to preach it. Join me in glad adoration, because my praise is not complete unless you join me. I got to tell you about it. You got to tell somebody else about it, because that's what you do when you love something. You tell other people about it. Praise to the Lord. Oh, let all that is within me adore him. All that has life and breath come now with praises before him. Let the amen sound from his people again. Gladly for air we adore him. Is it enough for you that God has got a plan and, that, and the reason for that plan is for the praise of his glory? I pray that it is. Father, forgive us. Forgive me. I am the chief of sinners in this room. To suggest, to think, that praising you above the heavens is not satisfying enough. That, that you do all that you do to demonstrate and to display your glorious grace and all of creation and in salvation all that you do 
God, I pray that you would fix my broken heart and that I would be so enthralled and so delighted that I truly sing from the depths of my being praise, praise, praise to your glorious grace. Oh, do it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.